You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you've got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you, you may be already be good at it, but to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason, to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there? Welcome to the Magna Method Podcast. Again, this is your special host, Louis Barone, with the continuation of our interview with yours truly, Mark Magna. Uh, welcome to part two. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. I'm ready to get after it. Awesome. So the last time we left off, we were talking about the call. The call. Um, so we last we talked about the call on draft day. Uh, actually, second day of the NFL draft. That's when I got the call. It was a really special moment, very emotional, um, and I obviously hung up that phone contemplating my uh, future and thinking about what I would be experiencing uh, in the NFL as a rookie. It was very exciting, it was very happy, it was very emotional, like I said. It was also very stressful because I didn't know what to expect. And when you don't know what you're getting yourself into, you think you know. It's like the old MTV show. Remember that? Yeah. You think you know, but you have no idea. <laughs> and then I was on a plane uh, two days later to New York for a rookie minicamp. All right. So can you t- can you take us through some of the highlights uh, of that time? What were you anticipating? What was that feeling like? You know, you're on the plane. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? What do you think it would be like versus what? was it really like I mean what it was like is you, you jump on a plane you fly up there and I'm thinking you know now you're in the NFL it's the big show and you're going to be treated special you're going to be treated like you're a star you think you're a star it you know anyone who says that it's no big deal it's all good it's something that they're used to maybe the kids from like the bigger schools like the Michigan or the USC's but once again I was from a small school so I was excited, but I was also thinking, man, I was kind of feeling myself a little bit, thinking, you know, I'm going to get you know, the right carpet treatment, and um, I'm going to be treated really special. Mind you, I'm you know, trying to keep it humble, and when you get there, you realize you're a rookie. You know, you're a rookie in the NFL, and you are only as good as your last play in practice. And Coach Parcells uh, said something to me uh, in training camp, um, that I'll never forget. He said, "Now I know we're in minicamp, but this lesson you could apply to my rookie minicamp experience." I was really frustrated, and I was frustrated because I was exhausted. I was in, going into the uh, second week of training camp, and I, I didn't throw my helmet, but I was putting up, putting on a little tantrum after a play. And Coach Parcells pulled me aside, and he said, "Hey, Mark, come over here." And I walked over to him, and he said. The NFL veterans don't have to practice hard every day. Some of them don't even have to practice. I thought that was BS because, you know, you're killing yourself. It's kind of a system where you're set up to almost fail, if you will, because you're getting taxed out. The rookie's getting taxed out. The veterans are getting to rest often. Every few plays, every once in a while they go in, they perform, and then they rest the rest of practice. So it's kind of like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, right? (laughs) 
He said the NFL veterans don't have to do it all the time. They just have to show me that they can still do it. He said the rookies have to show me that they can do it. Not only do they have to show me that they can do it, they have to show me that they can do it all of the time. So you can't be a part-time hustler. You have to be a full-time go-in, go-out, every single play. And that's what rookie minicamp's like. You have to go hard all the time. You're trying to prove your worth. And you have to show them the value in what you're offering. If you can't do that, they just give you another plane ticket and send you home. Uh, it's that, that rigid, huh? Oh, yeah. And so what do you think they were trying to test as far as treating the rookies in that way, especially being so vocal about the fact that you were actually expected to work harder? Every, everything you do, the second you step into an organization, the first day, everything you do, they're testing your mettle. They're testing, it's a mental test, everything. And they don't really care. The only thing they care to see is you rise to the top. If you don't rise to the top, you really can't help them. You're just taking up space. And then the team builds you around you and spits you out. Hmm. It's one of those things uh, I mentioned before. You know, I have people here uh, that I work with that are great trainers. They're amazing people. But that environment taught me something really interesting. It, it taught me that there's no, when people say there's no days off, you, you don't get a sick day. Can you imagine if it's a practice day and you're trying to prove your value to an NFL coach staff and you say, I can't practice today because I'm sick, I have a cold? Hmm. How do you think that would go? I, I imagine just, not well. It just doesn't work <laughs> that way. I mean, and look, not, I get it, dude. We're not, not everyone's going to war, not everyone's playing the NFL, but. I think that more people should take their profession, career, and their jobs more seriously because can you perform today? And if you can't, that's fine. But I would like people to think if I'm not there and I haven't requested a day off, if I haven't put in for vacation time, I might be in a ditch or in a car accident somewhere. I'm going to be there even when I don't feel well because we talk about it all the time, Lewis. How you react, how you produce, how you perform when things aren't going well, are not going well, when you're not feeling well, is who you really are. You're at the top of your game, you're fueled up, you're rested, you're recovered, amazing recovery, I'm feeling spry, I'm on my feet, I can run. Of course you're supposed to perform well. When do you ever feel 100%? I don't know. I I, I don't think I've felt that since I was 18. I mean, I get it. We want to try to get as close as we can, but I don't know if you can. Yeah, and it's funny because we, I know, I know, I and a lot of people I know have thought that you know a guy makes it to the league and they're paid and they get to play a game for the rest of their life, and it sounds like you know just a lot of fun. You know, there's there's not much thought in the work that really goes into or the amount of pressure that really yeah. goes into the process. So that's pretty interesting. So what about off the field? What was that like? You know, now money, cars, women, is, is that a thing? Or is it literally go to practice, go home, go to sleep, go to practice? What's the life like? We have to be a little bit more specific. Are you talking about as soon as you get to the league, uh, rookie minicamp, uh, NFL, uh, like OTAs, uh, or are you talking about uh, training camp? Are you talking about during the season? Which one? Because it's all very different. Is it? Yeah. Well, I guess let's talk a little bit about the difference in in you know mini camp moving into uh, regular you know preseason camp and 
So I, I flew there. I went to rookie minicamp. The second you show up for rookie minicamp, uh, you get a, a full physical once again. And then they put you through a full combine once again. Wow. So you're not really recovered. You're expecting to rest your body a little bit. The second you step foot in that facility, it's like another combine. So you're going to do 225 as many times as you can. Now think about this. How would your body respond? We're in a training field. Strength and conditioning, more or less. How would your body respond if you had to give max effort in a 40-yard dash, pro shuttle, um, a three-cone, vertical, um, broad, and I said 225, right? Yeah. Max effort in all those events. And then you have to go and practice. It's very demanding yeah. on the body. It's very high stress. Sure. And then you have three days of practice. Very intense, very competitive. No, it's not full pads at all. It's really just helmets and, and jerseys, but it's a lot of work. You know, you're out there. It's not that it's hard. It's just that it's a lot. Right. It's definitely not hard. But you've already tested yourself out. You go through rookie minicamp. That's three days. You go back to your hometown or college. You rest up a little bit, but you're still training. And then you come back for uh, basically vet minicamp. Then you come back. You go back home. You come back to the facility again for off-season training. Maybe you get a little uh, one-week or two-week break, and then you come back for uh, training camp, and then you're going the whole time. Wow. And then you have the season if you make the team, which, you know, I, we've talked about this before. A lot of guys say, you know, they played in the NFL because they went to NFL training camp. That means you went to NFL training camp. You didn't play in the NFL. Yeah. You, you got a lot of cool mail. But you didn't get, you didn't make a team. You don't make a team to you actually wear the jersey yeah. on NFL game day, not preseason. And there's only 53 guys on that roster. Yeah. You start off with, I don't know, 80 or 90, and there's cuts every day. There's little cuts, there's big cuts. They got to get down 15 guys, then 15, then 20, big cuts, and they got to get a lot of guys off that roster. So where'd you end up that first year? That well with the jet, I didn't even make the Jets. I was with the Jets and all through training camp. I think I was the last dude to get cut and walk out of that building. Wow, what was which that is, like? by the way, which is just as important as the first dude to get cut. <laughs> We're all getting cut, so it yeah. doesn't matter if you're the right. Um, but that was interesting. Um, I'll tell you this: a lot of people don't know this, but when. They say last cuts are coming, and they're going to make the cuts between uh, this time frame. I packed all my bags. I even packed my truck, and I knew that I was going to get cut. Had I not been cut, I would have been shocked hmm. because I was, there was such a disconnect Excuse me, where I felt like I wasn't part of the system, and I, hadn't, I didn't prove my worth. So I was like, you know, I'm not going to make this team. I'm just not because there wasn't enough value in who Mark Magno was. So I was already packed. So when they said that, I was like, I was almost, I wasn't excited, but I just knew. So yeah. I kind of mentally prepped myself. But you know, it's funny, Lewis, no matter how much you mentally prepare yourself, when it happens, you're still like, damn. Yeah, of course. And I was really emotional. I remember, so Dick Haley was the GM. I went to Dick Haley's office and his son, uh, Todd Haley, is now an NFL coach. And he was the wide receiver coach at the time. And he used to get abused by Coach Parcells. Anyway, I went to Dick Haley's office. And he said, Mark, we're going to let you go. Uh, we, you know, he said, we'll think you, you, you'll probably catch on with another team. Which I didn't even believe that, by the way. Because mm -hmm. I, I don't know what they would watch on a film. Um, 
And then he said, but before you leave, Coach Belichick wants to talk to you. So I left Coach, uh, Mr. Haley, not Coach, Mr. Haley's office. And he walked me into Coach Belichick's office. And he said, uh, hey, Mark, I, so I guess you already got the news. We're going to let you go. But I do think that you can play in this league. But I think you're at a disadvantage because you haven't been playing linebacker for the last four years. You've been playing defensive line. I said you need. He said you need lots of reps at linebacker. So I think you need to catch on with another team, and maybe you know play special teams, be a practice squad player, maybe get sent over to Europe. And that was Parcells. That was no, that was uh, Bill Belichick. Did okay. I say Parcells? No, no, you no. said Bill Belichick. Coach rather. Belichick, because okay. he was a defensive coordinator for the New York Jets. I see. Okay. And Coach Parcells was the head coach. Gotcha. So. I, I thanked him, and, you know, uh, it's funny because Coach Haley said, uh, Mr. I keep going, Coach Haley, uh, Mr. Haley said that, you know, Coach Belichick doesn't talk to everyone, so you should take that as a compliment that he called you in there, oh. and I certainly did. Yeah. But by the way, Coach Belichick was a great coach, and I respected the hell out of him, but he obviously wasn't the Bill Belichick today. Right. He was just a really smart guy that everyone respected, right? right. And that being said, I left there, I got in my car, and I cried. I really cried, yeah. you know, and uh, I was embarrassed, and I said this, uh, you know, I cried when I got drafted, I cried when I got cut. There was a lot of crying going on, very emotional. <laughs> I had, I, I carried my own box of tissues, <laughs> but um, I, I cried, you know, for a few minutes, and I was really like, you know what? I literally had to give myself, the t like, I didn't even know who Tony Robbins was back then, Yeah. but I get, had to give myself the Tony Robbins pep talk, <laughs> like, it's going to be good, and you can do this, and this is a learning experience. Yeah. I'm basically telling myself that back then. And I'm thinking, you know what, man? This is going to be the greatest lesson of your life. Mm. Now, if you can bounce back from this, you can bounce back from anything. And when you think about it, dude, getting uh, cut from an NFL team, it's bad. But come on, there's much worse things in life. Of course. You know, I mean, you make it that far and you're you're happy with what you accomplished, but you know it's possible. And that's the worst thing because you know what you're, you're, what could really happen. Yeah. And just so close that you can taste it. Where do you feel you fell short? I mean, you're you're an athlete. You've played sports your whole life. If you have to constantly think and analyze everything before it happens, you're not going to have a lot of freedom to just go out and play with reckless abandon. Right. Right? And if you're thinking, you slow things down. So if I took a world-class athlete who ran a 4-4 and he didn't know where he was going, he looks like he's running a 4-9. Yeah. Now, I wasn't running a 4-4, right? <laughs> I was a very average athlete. But if I don't know where I'm going, how do you think that looks? Yeah. And it's not like I didn't know where I was going. It just it wasn't as natural as it should be. It just wasn't. Right. I mean, I, there, was, there was certain things that I did well, of course, but... Not enough things, you know? So I think productive, not being as productive, not knowing, like, hey, man, if it's a blitz and that, that, that guy stays in, che doesn't check down, let's say you have the running back man-to-man -man and doesn't go on the route, and he stays in to protect. Well, he's your man. Go meet him in the backfield and sack the quarterback. He's not going to leak out for a pass, right? Why wouldn't you naturally add to the rush? You don't think about things like that. You think, let me hang here, and then I'll just make sure he doesn't go on the route. Well, that's great, but you're not doing anything. Yeah. Now, you could get involved in crossing patterns and routes like that, and if they tell you to do that, you could certainly do that, but they were telling me you got to go.
And if you're not rushing, you're like, why wouldn't you want a sack? Are you okay? You see what I'm saying? How it looks? So it's like, you stick out like a sore thumb, man. It's, it is what it is. Like you can, this is what we talked about before, right? You can be fast, you can be strong, you can be conditioned, you can be the best athlete in the world, but it's almost better to be out of shape, right? (laughs) Slow. But if you really know what you're doing, you may look fast. Like your veteran guys. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, some guys came in. I remember linebackers coming in at 280 pounds and their check-in weight was 250. Mm. They're like, it's all good. I'll lose it during camp. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're getting fined $1,000 per pound per day. Wow. But that was it. That's why. I gotcha. And so now you transition out. Talk to us a little bit about that. What happens next? I left uh, Hofstra, the facility, and I just I didn't drive to Massachusetts. I honestly didn't want to go home because I feared the look that my mother would give me. Not like she would be disappointed. She'd be proud of me no matter what, but I didn't want to... I mean, I think I would have felt even worse if I saw my mom. Mm. I called her and told her, but I felt like I let the entire city down. Yeah. I really did. So, I drove to the University of Richmond because there I was like... Your safe haven. Yeah, I was treated so well. People loved me. I mean, of course my mom loved me, but I just know that you know, they, they, they take me under the wing and say, it's going to be all good, you know. Good things will come. Yeah. I was there for one day, and the Patriots, you have to clear waivers, right? If no one picks you up, then the Patriots wanted to call me. Uh, Pete Carroll called me, hmm. and he said, Mark, we want to add you to our practice squad. So I turned around and drove back to Massachusetts. I think I drove like, I don't know, like 1,300 miles in two days. <laughs> And I showed up at Foxborough Stadium. Uh, the head of uh, player operations was uh, Bobby Greer. He met me at the door, and they signed me to a contract. I walked in. Pete Carroll shook my hand. He said, welcome to the New England Patriots. I cried one day. I cried again <laughs> because I was going to the Patriots. It's funny how, like, you know, you, you go from, you know, first to worst, back to first, and yeah. you never know what's around the corner, man. Yeah. So, I mean, if you told me, hey, man, you're going to get cut, you're going to get picked up like a Patriots. I'm like, cut me now. <laughs> right? Yeah. So because the, the Jets were the Patriots' rivals back then. Like, yeah. they hated each other. So I was in New England, and I remember getting fitted for my pads. And you're a Pats fan too, right? I grew up a huge Pats fan. And, man, I, I bleed red, white, and blue. So it was a really special moment. So when you were thinking NFL, the first hope was Pats. If you could choose your own team. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was in kindergarten, they filmed all the kids stating their profession. And when I stood up, I said, I'm going to play football for the New England Patriots. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And then I I was with the Pats uh, for that year. And it was a great experience under Coach Carroll and his staff. But the interesting thing was, after that, uh, during the off season, Bill Parcells stepped down from the New York Jets, and he stepped down because he knew Bill Belichick was going to take the reins as the Jets coach, and he left because he got a, a huge deal by Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, to be the head coach of the New England Patriots. Wow. I think the Pats gave away like two or three first-round choices to get Coach Belichick. Wow. And uh, I was like, well, Coach Belichick is known to clean house, so he's probably going to get rid of me too, <laughs> which was... Uh, 
not the case. He he you know liked me and saw potential in the development and sent me to Europe to play for the Barcelona Dragons. I remember when he called me in his office and he said, I have good news and I have bad news. He said, the good news is, I uh, know the bad news is you're going to Europe. He said, the good news is that you're going to be playing for the Barcelona Dragons. And he said, be careful over there because it's a lot of fun. Oh, boy. And I've never been to Europe. And to be quite honest, I probably never would have went to Europe yeah. until maybe my 30s or now. So tell us about, like, the connection with that. Um, I know, I don't know much about... Um NFL Europe and how it works in conjunction to the you know NFL here. H- how does that work? You know, how did you perceive that as a player? Uh, what w- what were some of your expectations? Were you excited about it? Were you, you know, what what were you feeling at that time? Um, excited, nervous because I'd never been to Europe. Uh, happy because I was one of the players that was going over there with a few teammates. Each NFL team allocates a certain amount of players to NFL Europe. They're usually reserve players or practice squad players. They send them over there because NFL Europe is the AAA of the NFL. Gotcha. Uh, they send people over there when they need more reps. They need more PT, more playing time. And when you get allocated to a team, that means you're going to be playing for that team. Now, allocated players, they used to say, don't get cut because the team is paying for those players to go over there. So it's like, hey, I'm paying for this dude. You can't cut him. Gotcha. However, they do cut allocated <laughs> players. Um, you didn't learn it the hard way, did you? No, I didn't. But I didn't yeah. realize that when when they started, they say stuff just got real. Yeah. And they started cutting like good players in training wow. camp for NFL Europe. I was like, we bet. I mean, this is no joke. Yeah. If you get cut from here, then you're really in trouble. Gotcha. So, went to Orlando for training camp. All the teams went down there. They have. Uh, I think they have eight teams, I want to say. And they it was fun. It was We held practices and scrimmages at Disney World, well, a local high school, and then Disney World at the practice facility, which is really beautiful, nice. by the way. And it was great. I went down there with one of my dear friends, Sean Morey, who's a Brown University graduate and the all-time leading receiver from the Ivy League nice. and a Patriots teammate. And I also played against him in high school. But we were like... Uh, close buddies down there had a great time and after they made the final cuts i was still there thank goodness and then we went off to europe very cool so what's this experience like now taking a guy from fall river going to europe this is i imagine your first time out of the country yeah i never i I wasn't uh a well-traveled young person i the only places i've ever i had ever been uh were florida did my mom took my brother and i to disney when i was a kid it was awesome and uh, but we, I went to Canada in high school to play in a hockey tournament, and I also went with my grandparents to Montreal. No, I went to uh, Tremblant with my uh, grandparents. Um, I was nervous, to be honest with you. I just wanted to play football. I didn't know what it was going to be like. You don't know if you're going over there to play in front of sixty thousand people a game, or you don't know if you're going to play in front of five thousand people a game. Yeah. All you know is that when you get in that field, you better play. You better play well. When I got over there, I've done some research about the coach and some people told me stories. If you're familiar with the name Doug Flutie, right? Of course. Of course. Well, Doug Flutie played at Boston College. Did you know that? Yeah. Okay. He threw a pass. Yeah, one of the most famous games. Right. Yeah, famous pass. games. Beat the University of Miami yeah. in, in the Cotton Bowl or the uh, Orange Bowl, maybe. I forget which bowl. I don't even know. All I know is that they beat University of Miami on a Hail Mary pass by Doug Flutie, and the head coach of that team was Jack Bicknell. 
cowboy Jack McNeil. And he, he wore a cowboy hat, chewed tobacco. <laughs> he was he was kind of like John Wayne as a football coach. And this guy, I mean, he did things his own way when I tell you that. We pra- we would wake up in the morning. You wake up at like 7.30, have breakfast. You're in films at 8 o'clock. You watch film from 8 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. At 8.30 a.m., you go to get on the bus. You're on the bus at 8.45 a.m. You get to the practice site at 9.15. You practice from 9.15 till 10.15, one hour, maybe, mm-hmm. with helmets and jerseys, no shoulder pads, no pads. Most of the time, he'd say no helmets. So you're just walking and talking drills. Now, don't forget, this is a professional team. Yeah. You're done with practice by 11 o'clock. You're back at the hotel and eating lunch before noon. You have from noon and the rest of the day to do whatever you want to do oh, in wow. Barcelona, Spain. Jeez. Good and bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> Good because, you know, you're not killing your body. Yeah. And Listen, I appreciate this by Coach Bignell. Coach Bignell understood that, look, if you went to rookie minicamp, NFL offseason minicamp, training camp, and NFL season, if you played or didn't play, it doesn't matter. You're still tooling on the body, really. I mean, obviously, the guys playing got more tooled, but everyone's getting tooled, right? As soon as the season's over, you get like a month off, and then you go into NFL Europe. You just did another training camp. And now you're going to play again yeah, a season. I got you. He understood that you got to take it easy on the body or these guys are going to fall apart, which was good. Like we, It was good because we went into games fresh. We were rested. But it, you kind of need that contact a little bit. you got to to get your fits, to get used to the drills. Um, I think a great balance would have been a little bit better. But I definitely appreciated his way because he was a veteran coach. He knew his stuff backwards. Um, turns out, in my opinion, because we're in Barcelona, Barcelona was a party city. I mean, every meal is a huge, giant uh, pan of paella. <laughs> there's beers on every table. There's sangria on every table. There's cigars on every table. This is like every dinner. Okay. Wow. Now, I'll tell you this. I think did we discuss this before? Like, there's a reason there's no alcohol on NFL tables like before games or during the week of practice there's they don't yeah, put it there we never talked about that okay so I, I think that they don't put it there because if it's there they're going to drink it some guys will because they think they can handle it and maybe right. they can but some guys can't and when I left the New England Patriots facility uh, the offensive line coach who's coming back this year or maybe he came back last year his name is Dante Scarnecchia he's known to be one of the toughest smartest best offensive line coaches in the NFL. Shorter little guy, but really, really yeah. awesome, awesome coach. He put me in his office and he said, Mark, um, send this, we're sending an offensive lineman over there with you. I want you to keep an eye on him, keep him out of trouble. And I put this in my book. The first night we were there, this dude drank a little bit too much. There was an altercation within oh. the team and there was a fight and he was sent home the next day. Wow. That was it. Wow. So, it's just hard. It's like taking, uh, let's say you took an 18-year-old kid who went to college for three years. Now he's 21. He left college. He's a first-round draft choice, and he got a $40 million contract, and he signed with the Miami Dolphins, and now he lives in South Beach, Miami. Yeah. This is all the money in the world. How do you think that's going to work out for him? 
Probably not that well. It's going to be hard. Right. I mean, even if he the most well-rounded, good head on his shoulders, it's going to be very difficult because there's so many things thrown in your path, right? Yeah. The first night I was in Barcelona, aside from that fight, I remember it was 11.30 at night, and I hear this loud like, group of people and music. And I go to the balcony, and I look out the balcony, I look down the street, and I see hundreds of people. Hundreds of people in the street drinking and dancing and partying, and I'm thinking, this must be a special event. <laughs> every night, Lewis. On a Tuesday. Yeah, they do this every <laughs> night. And I'm thinking, ah, we're in trouble. Because now I understand why teams like Germany would win it, because there's nothing to do there. Yeah. Everyone wants to go to Barcelona because it's like a party. And we went uh, five and five, I think. Cause there was ten games, yeah. but it was a, it wasn't a hard season. It was just it was great to get the reps. It was a great experience. I love Barcelona. It was an incredible mo- uh, time in my life. But in regards to football, it's hard to uh, yeah. focus. So that's you know on that you know being honest, what where was your focus? Was it I got to get these reps and I got to get better? I got to get back into you know I want to go back. Uh, and play for the Pats, you know, so I got to make sure I'm focused. I get, or were you just living out, you know, that opportunity in, in Spain? It really wasn't that hard for me. I mean, listen, don't forget at the time Bill Belichick had just became the head coach, and I went through a season with him. I knew what he expected. I knew what kind of ship he, tight ship he ran. I knew what he expected of me, yeah. and I knew if I showed up there not ready, I mean, it would be minutes before I got cut. That's the way he did it. So, it wasn't that hard for, with me. And by the way, they, I mean, you could certainly focus and still enjoy some good moments after games and have a good time. Sure, of course. You really could. It's just that I'm the kind of, uh, like I go, I'm like the Will Ferrell, Frank the Tank, go crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to hang out and make sure that I get all my stuff taken care of. And I'm going to stay as far away from that as possible. And at the end of the season, when it was over, we all went on as a team. We had a great time, but I, I can't let that uh, infiltrate my world because uh, I have to be all in or all out. That's just the way I was, and I was. It wasn't that hard for me to focus over there, but as a team, it was hard. Gotcha. And so that comes to an end. What? Where to next? We leave Barcelona uh, as soon as I got back. We had a conditioning test. Wow. Yeah, we had a conditioning test. It was, man, I was trying to think about this the other day. It was 40, 50s. It was 20, 40 yard, uh, 50 yard dashes. Wow. Because the skill players had 60s, the linemen had 40s, and the tight ends, linebackers, uh, fullbacks had 50s. So two sets of 10. After the first 10, I think you got a two or three minute break, and you have to do. 20 50 yard dashes under a certain time wow so it's full-blown sprinting well it's not full-blown sprinting it's like no it can't be max effort because you you die right yeah you wouldn't make it but um you know it's just like under a certain cap so maybe you had to do like 20 50s under 60 seconds uh 6.06 seconds okay you know what i mean like right so you'd want to finish that that five nine nine every one and then you get like 35 seconds rest or something then you do another one and it's really possible to do it, and everyone does it, obviously. But when we did it, I went over to NFL Europe at 245, 247 pounds. I came back at 228. Wow. Maybe 225. 
And when I do the conditioning tests, it's like everything we've ever learned, right? Science. If you're lighter, <laughs> it's just it's easier. It's science. easier, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, when I ran the conditioning test, I remember Coach Belichick walked over to me and said, he said, Magna, this is a breeze for you, isn't it? Because some of the guys were there and they were struggling. Well, when you know when you get ready for a uh, season in football or another sport and you practice hard, you do your strength and conditioning, you think you're ready, but nothing gets you ready like the actual play. Of course. You have to get acclimated to the actual playing. Well, we were playing all the time. We just played a lot of football, right? Yeah. And the rosters are so small that you're on punt, punt return, kickoff, kickoff return, and regular defense. So, of course, you're ready for that. Yeah. Like You could do that all day. But don't, you're lighter. You're not as big. You're not ready to take the pounding. You're just yeah. worn out. You're in like this combat mode of just keep going. Yeah, you're just well conditioned at that yeah. point. Yeah. Not so, really football ready, right. so to speak. So, uh, the conditioning tests, and then... Uh, had a little bit of time off. I think it was a week, maybe, or a few days, and then went to training camp. With the Pats? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so then from there, where do you go? Uh, we go to... Did you repeat again the same thing? Bryant University for training camp in Rhode Island. That's yeah. where we had training camp. And I actually had a great training camp. It was... You know, this time going through training camp, I was like, there's no way I'm not making this team. Okay. You know, so mate was there, played, then was cut, then was picked up by the Bengals, played for the Bengals, then uh, my last game for the Bengals, I played at Foxborough against the Patriots, and. I was in a collision with Lawyer Malloy. Remember Lawyer Malloy? Yeah. He was a safety at the time. He signed a $36 million contract. He was the highest paid uh, defensive back in the NFL at the time. That's funny, yeah. right? It's like chump change. Yeah. But he lined me up, went to, he whacked me. But the way he hit me at the last second I saw him turned into him, and it looked like he actually got the blunt of it. But I, but I certainly did. I fell on top of him. He hurt his knee badly. And everyone was like, wow, Mark Magna just laid out Lawyer Malloy. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. And that certainly wasn't the case. Went back to Cincinnati. Had a great game. Went back to Cincinnati. When I say great game, I mean on special teams. Yeah. That's it. Uh, went back to Cincinnati. The next day in Cincinnati, they say, we're going to get rid of you. We're going to cut you. Because we had injuries, uh, significant injuries to the wide receiver position. We have to bring in like two or three wide receivers. So the last guy in the roster gets cut. And they bring in other people. Wow. So Mark Duffson, the linebacker coach, called me in his office and he said, Megs, I'm so sorry. We have to let you go. And he was the best guy in the world. Great coach. I mean, this guy used to, you know, say, Megs, when are you going to take out my daughter, one of my daughters? <laughs> I mean, he was a riot. I mean, he was a great coach. And he, he, this guy was the most genuine, authentic, cared about his players. He darn near cried when he caught me, I swear. Oh, man. True story. Gave me a hug. And he said, look, Mark, if, you, if you're here in a week, we're going to pick you back up. At the very least, we'll put you on the practice squad. But I remember talking to my agent that day, and he said, if you get cut, the Patriots are going to pick you back up. And I was thinking, oh, man. Because don't forget, the Bengals activated me, and I was playing. Gotcha. 
So, and by the way, not only is it better and more fun to play, but you make much more money. Gotcha. So when the Patriots said they were going to pick me up, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know what the Patriots. I said, if the Patriots pick me up, like, I I, I didn't want to be there, you know, because I was a little bit bitter. I thought I should have made that team, man. I was playing well. I was doing everything right. I mean, I walked out of there with so much confidence, and I couldn't believe it, right? Sure enough, like I could, den- I could get picked up. Or the Patriots could put an offer, and I could say, "No, I'm not going there." But who does that, right? right? right. You don't do that. So I said, "Of course, I'm going back." I go back. So now check out this timeline, Lewis. I play for the Bengals against the Patriots. Positive game. Go back to Cincinnati. Next day, get cut. Get picked up by the Patriots. <laughs> That Monday night, I play for the Patriots. Monday night, uh, not not that Monday night, the following Monday night football against the Kansas City Chiefs. There may have been a lag week in there. I, I can't really remember to be honest with you, but I remember going right into the playbook and saying, "These are your positions on special teams. You're playing." And I was like, "Ah, buy me dinner first or something," <laughs> you know. But I was excited, but you know, and it was cool because everyone. The first I walked back into the building, Lewis. I saw two people. The first person I saw was Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, and he said, Mark, he's like, back where you belong, son. And I was really excited because he's a great, great man. He really is. He's an extraordinary guy. And then the second person I saw was Lawyer Malloy, and he was on crutches. Oh, man. And he said, he looked at me, he said, mother effer. And he goes, dude, my, my leg is all ass, ass, messed up. And I was thinking, no, I'm sorry, dude. My, I'm, I said, I'm sorry, bro. And he's like, it's all good. I'll be fine. <laughs> he didn't, I mean, he cared, but it wasn't, he knew, like he was trying to line me up. He was trying to hurt me when he hit me. Yeah. And karma worked yeah. out that way. <laughs> and, but lawyer honestly treated me like a brother. He was an amazing dude. Yeah. That guy took better, between Chris Lay, Willie McGinnis, lawyer, and even Teddy Bruschi. They were incredible to me. Um, it, it was great. So I was back there uh, playing now for the Pats. And honestly, I was loving life. It was a great experience. And don't forget, this was Bill Belichick's first year. So he was laying down the foundation of what you see now. Yeah. Everything. And when you say, like, you're going to work, you're stressed at work, <laughs> you have no idea, dude. Like, I would be putting my cleats on. True story. Willie McGinnis would look over at me and he'd go, he'd say, hey, Max, how are you feeling today? I said, ah, I feel pretty good. He goes, good, because see those guys that just walked in? He said, they're trying to take your position today. Huh. And I'm telling you, these guys look like me. They had, like, the same color eyes, the same color hair, <laughs> the same height. They were all from small schools. Yeah. They were all known as workhorses. They were effort guys, yeah. and they were all eager to play. Like, okay, where's the guy? Well, who's the Mark? Yeah. You know, Mark has an M-A-R-K. Who do I got to beat out? Oh, that guy? Pff, I got him all day, they would say. So... Dude, practice for me wasn't, ah, let's get this walkthrough in. Let's just get our fits, get our adjustments. Yeah. It was like, when they blow that whistle, bro, you better go. Wow. And it was full speed the whole week. And not everyone's doing that. That's crazy. And we're only in year two right now, right? It's, this sounds like a 30-year career. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's three seasons in less than a year and a half. That's crazy. Uh, it's, it's about a year and a half. Yeah. We're going into the, through the second season. And every day is a battle for your Dude, job. Every single play. I'm not kidding at all. Like, people will tell you. If you call them up right now and ask them, they'd be like, yep. Bill Belichick let, set an NFL record, and you can look this up. 
with transactions or cuts or something like that for the year. It was like over a hundred or something. That's like nice. he was just shuffling guys in and out. Like if you made ten next week, it was like we were giving each other high fives. Yeah. And I'm talking about it wasn't that the stars? Of course not. Like we talked about the last few guys in a roster. Like right. there was like four or five special teams guys that were the core of the special teams unit. And it was like we knew what he wanted to do, what how he was trying to do it and you had to do your job and do your job very well. They couldn't. There's no room for mistakes. Like he was trying to explain, get the point across that we don't make mistakes. Because if you play mistake free, you only have an opportunity to win. If you make mistakes, you can't win. Right. You just can't. And he was trying to explain that to or or reinforce that with our team. Gotcha. So now you finish out the year with the Pats. Uh, I finished out the year with the Pats and then um, allocated to uh, NFL Europe again. Again. Yeah. Same team, Barcelona. No. Different well, team. hold on. Yes. Yes, Barcelona. And then we all go to San Francisco to do, like, evaluations or something. They, You know, yeah. they weigh in. and it's like a More cat- testing. Yeah. Because <laughs> maybe my height or eye color changed. Yeah. So um, we're doing these player evaluations and uh, filling out paperwork. And uh, there was this guy, Brian Cho or Chan. He was like uh, the head of the NFL Europe, like the organizer or something. And he said, hey, Mark, uh, I just wanted to talk to you. Yeah, you're not going to go to Barcelona this year. You're going to Berlin. And I was like, yeah, that's not possible because Coach Belichick wanted me to go to Barcelona. (laughs) And he goes, yeah, that doesn't matter. You're You're going to Berlin. And I was thinking, man... I was bummed out because, number one, now I was known in Barcelona yeah. in a good way. Like, I knew my right. way around. Right. And by no means was I a star. I just, I mean, I was known within, like, the hotel staff, you know. Right. It was, you were it, comfortable it was, it was comfortable, yeah. Right. Um, so, my my best friend at the time, Sean Morey, was going to Barcelona. And... Uh, when I heard I was going to Berlin, I was like, "Man, I don't know anyone on Berlin. I don't, I don't even like the sound of Germany. It just sounds cold, right?" <laughs> and don't forget, Barcelona is like the beach, man. It's like yeah. nice, beautiful, everything about it. So, get to Germany. The head coach is Peter Voss, who used to be the assistant to Jack McNeil. Okay. So that they're already, but they already, it's already a grudge match. Yeah. Those guys don't like each other. So Barcelona has a stacked team. And they're predicted to win, like, the World Bowl. Um, the year before, I think uh, Ryan Fire won it when I was in Barcelona. So I go to Berlin. Training camp's in Tampa this time. Um, I, you know, it's one of the good things about being in Berlin was uh, one of the wide receivers from uh, University of Richmond, Dewan Jones, who was actually at my house recently. He's now an NFL scout for the Saints, uh, uh, New Orleans Saints. He was on the team, and that was a pretty cool experience having someone from Richmond you played college with on your team. And I remember Duan had a terrible training camp. Like, I mean, I remember one time they threw a ball at him, hit him in the face, and knocked Jeez. him over. Like, it was really <laughs> bad. I was thinking, this is not good. Well, he ended up making the team. He was really, really fast, by the way. Yeah. Really fast. I ended up making the team. We went to Berlin. Our practice facility was in Hitler's armies barracks we had private security everywhere wow. 
not everywhere, but a lot of places because we had a lot of African-Americans on the team. And there was days where there was Hitler youth rallies. Wow. And it, it wasn't the safest environment. But, you know, the funny thing is you in Berlin, we would get a lift in every once in a while. We would practice. We'd go back to the hotel and we wouldn't do anything. We would watch films. Nothing else to do. In Barcelona, the opposite, right? Yeah. Well, it turns out the first time we played Barcelona that year, we got beat 55 to 25 or 23. I should look that up, see how accurate I am. We got stomped. Like, we got annihilated. And it's like, we're going to be awful. Yeah. Well, the last game of the year, before the last game of the year, the coach comes out and he says, hey, guys, I just want everyone to know that today um, Scotland beat Ryan, so they're out of it. So if we win today, we're going to the World Bowl because we had beaten a team that was going to be tied with us. So if we won that day, we're going to be playing Barcelona in the World Bowl, okay? Okay. So we go to Amsterdam to play in, like, the largest venue in front of, like, 80,000 people in the World Bowl. I have pictures of it. It was incredible. So you, you guys won. You made we won World that Bowl. game. Now we're in the World Bowl. Okay. Now, I remember before the game, it was kind of like the bad news beers. Like, now, Barcelona knows that they whooped up on us, which yeah. was the worst thing for a player's psyche. They know that they could kill us, right? Yeah. Before the game, Barcelona is like all serious. They're all focused. The linebackers I was with was uh, this guy. This One of the guys' names was Dax. Another one was Joey O'Neal. And we had a kid, a safety named Billy uh, Dustin. I mean, these all like the kind of like punk rock kids, okay. and they were dancing and joking around before the game, and they were incredibly loose. Well, it turns out we took that game all the way down to the wire. Dewan Jones, who barely made the team, caught a bomb at the half, like a 50-yard bomb from Jonathan Quinn, who was a starting QB for the Chicago Bears at one point. And at the end of the game, he caught a pass. Like, it was like 60 yards, 65 yards. Jumped up between two defenders, hopped over him, and then dove into the end zone. Two scores. Oh. Was the MVP of that game, Dewan Jones. And on the last play, on the 10-yard line going in, it's tied. No, we're up. We're up. Barcelona is needs a score to win this game. There was a defensive lineman from the University of Virginia named Al Harris who was six foot seven, or maybe 6'8". He was probably 250 pounds. He was long. The quarterback for Barcelona drops back. Now, Al Harris probably didn't do much all year. He wasn't very productive. Former first-round draft choice for the Philadelphia Eagles. The quarterback for Barcelona drops back, sees his target, goes to throw. The long body and long arms of Al Harris puts his arms up in the end, knocks the ball down. We won the game. Wow. We won the World Bowl, and we're, we weren't even supposed to be there against a team that smacked us during the year. And had a huge advantage to see you guys twice in a year because that, oh. that doesn't happen in football. I, I thought they were going to beat us 100 yeah. times, uh, 100 to nothing. Yeah. And we ended up winning that game. It was it was unbelievable. That's crazy. And and I wanted to go to Barcelona. I was sour about not bringing Barcelona. <laughs> That's the irony of it, right? Crazy. Crazy so, how that worked yeah, out. Yeah, you never know how it's going to work out. So, all right. So now that season. story, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. So – that was a great story, man. That's crazy. I didn't know, I didn't know that that happened when you were in NFL Europe. Um, so now that season comes to an end. What happens next? 
W- what year are we in now? Now we're in 2-2. Two, two. Uh, 2-1, 2001. Wow, okay. man. It's like a thousand years ago. <laughs> All right, and now... Don't do the math on my age. Don't. <laughs> Where to next? Then I come back um, to New England. Wait. No, as soon as I get back to New England, second-year player. Now I have second-year player status. So I get cut by the Patriots. I leave, I go back to Richmond, I coach football during this season, uh, college football, I'm the assistant defensive line coach at the oh, University wow. of Richmond. Those and, guys really did love you, huh? Oh man, it was great, <laughs> these guys are awesome. I mean, I was you know, coaching to Coach Reed, I saw more about coaching and the psychology of coaching and how to treat players, how the players treat coaches and the back end of things and recruiting, I went on recruiting visits up in the Northeast, right. it was it was a great experience. So at that time, were you feeling like you were done with the NFL? Like you were exhausted at this point? Or how, how are you feeling at this point when you decide? Like, Well, a couple things happened. Uh, when, before, when I got released by the Patriots, I went to Richmond. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to coach. But the first time the Arizona Cardinals called me and they said, we're going to fly you in. We want to sign you. I packed my bag. I go to the airport. As I'm walking to the gate, they say, Mark, um, you know, we've decided not to bring you in. I was like, oh, man, that's so embarrassing, you know? Yeah. So I turn around, go back to Richmond. The next week, the Steelers call me, and they fly me to training camp, wherever it was. I forget. I forget where it was. I go to the meeting that night, the team meeting, the night before training camp. Yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, What's his name? What's the coach's name at the time? And that not uh, Bill Cower. Okay. I'm sitting next to Cordell Stewart on the right, is on my right. In front of me is Jerome Bettis, and we go to the players' meeting. The and the meeting is like two hours. It's a nightmare. It's the most boring meeting in camp. <laughs> and they go over like the player rule book, and I'll never forget this. Bill Cower says we're going to go over the rules and regulations, and he pulls out this book. He says, "See this book, guys? There's probably about 300 pages in this book of rules and regulations. I have one rule. We're not going to go through the book. If you are confronted with a moment, you have to do the right or wrong thing. Here's my rule: If you have to stop and decide if it's right or wrong, most likely it's wrong. Don't do it. Do the right thing. That's my only rule. Next, <laughs> I'll never forget that. Yeah. And the next, I, I slept in like. Uh, this rack in like a uh, a dorm room. It looked like a marine something uh, rack. And I got my equipment. And um, the day before, they, they actually uh, worked me out. They said they're going to sign me the next day. Got my equipment. Went to breakfast. As I'm walking to the office to sign my contract, they said, we didn't realize you had like third year status or something like that. And you're not, we can't sign you because we need a cheaper player. Right, because last night they signed two defensive backs to extensions, oh. and the math wouldn't work out. So now I'm in Pittsburgh, worked out for them, got my equipment, I'm ready to go to training camp, and they say no. Wow. Back in the plane, back to Richmond. So I stayed at Richmond. I coached the year at Richmond. That was it. I worked out a lot, and I uh, still trained hard. And at the time, I was also doing. Uh, personal training clients on the side to make ends meet because I didn't have, you know, I mean, I could definitely live off some of the money I was making, but I didn't want to just stay idle and spend money. Right. Yeah. So, 
Um, That's crazy, man. It seems like such an emotional tug of war. You know, oh, dude. there's so many books that talk about influence and how people. I mean, you can you can put together a team of people who are going to go pick up dog crap, you know, on the streets. And even though it's not the best job in the world, like if they're putting together a team, you almost want to be chosen. You know, even if it's even if you don't technically want to do it, you still want to be chosen. So that give and take of like, we want you, okay, we don't want you, we want you, we don't want you. You know, how'd you deal with that, man? I'm not so sure I did deal with it very well. Um, I think what you learn more than anything, I'm always preaching to the staff uh, at Anatomy now, you know, guys appreciate your job and appreciate your work because you're in an environment that's very forgiving and set up to put you in a position to succeed. The only downside to being in the environment that we're in is that you have to be very hard on yourself because I am not the person that's going to be incredibly hard on you. I'm going to place... Uh, I have standards and I have expectations and I'm going to push you, but I'm not going to do it the way it was done to me because psychologically it's a lot. And I don't think it's as productive. Like we have a no yelling policy at anatomy. We don't do that. But where I grew up in high school, college and in the NFL, it's all it was. And look, could I handle it? Yeah. Was it the best way? I don't know because look at Coach Belichick. He's incredible. He don't yell. He has his team yell, right? His guys yell. But at the same time, if they have to yell more than once, they're not going to waste their breath. And if they stop yelling, you're in trouble. How would I deal with it? It was hard. And I I don't think I did a very good job dealing with it because psychologically, Lewis, it's incredibly draining, you know? You, you want to be a part of things. And you if you're constantly told, no, you're not good enough, and people go, Mark, where did your drive come from? Guess what? <laughs> if you're told you're constantly not good enough, well, you constantly want to strive to be better. Yeah. You know? I hear you. So, okay. that, so I'm, I'm working out, and I get a call from a guy uh, who was in the organization, I think, of Calgary of Tor- or Toronto. He was like the head scout for Toronto Argonauts. And he said, Mark, I'm really interested in you, and I, I think I want to bring you in, but i got to work you out first. got to get a look at you. And he came down, and he, and he said he was going to be here, and he, and he missed me. And then he came down again, and then I met up with him, and he said, I think we're going to sign you. I think we're going to sign you. And while he was contemplating signing me, I got a call from the general manager of the Montreal Alouettes, and he said, hey, Mark, uh, we have your rights. We picked you up out of Richmond we, we we hold your rights and we want to pick you up are you still interested in playing football and I said yeah um, what position would I be playing he said you'll be a defensive end pass rusher and I'm thinking <laughs> this is like this guy's sweet talking me because that's the only thing I want to do and uh, I said I, I want to do that so I called my agent I said what's it like up there he's like dude man this is going to be the best job in the world. Like you're going to play for one of the best teams in Canada. It's a great organization. The city's incredible, and you're going to have the experience of a lifetime. He said, "You got to go up there." So I went up there thinking, "Oh, this is great. I'm going to be on this team. It's going to be like you know, honky dory, no problem." Yeah. The day I got to training camp, I walked into a room, and there were 17 guys in that room, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is isn't a." A lot of guys for the entire defense <laughs> and they said this is the room for the defensive lineman and i'm like oh well that's not bad because look they're going to keep four starters and then four reserve players yeah. maybe they'll keep two more guys so i gotta beat out you know be 10 guys right 
Why are you going to be one of 10 guys? And they say, Mark, um, we're going to keep two Americans, maybe three, maybe three. <laughs> I call my agent. And I said, I got to tell you something, Mike. His name is Mike Cloisey. And he's a friend of mine. We had a great banter. And I said, Mike, why would you send me here? I said, there's 17 defensive linemen. Number one, I'm the shortest in the room. I'm the smallest in the room. All these guys are from big schools and I'll have NFL experience. I'm like, come on, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? He's like, he said, I know that, but they, they're not looking for that. They're looking for guys like you. I said, what do you mean? He's like, the head coach, the new head coach of the Montreal Wets was a guy named Donnie Matthews. He was the all-time winningest coach in CFL history. He got to Montreal, and he basically cut the entire team. He cut the team because the last time they won a championship, they always won, but they never won a championship since 1976 under uh, Marv Levy, who used to be the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Okay. He was the head coach of Montreal when they won it in like 76 or 78. They hadn't won it since, and now it's 2002. He said, just do what you do, hustle, work hard. And that same year, Chris Jones was a new defensive lineman, a defensive line coach there. He was this short white guy from Tennessee who talked with a southern drawl. I mean, this guy was probably 5'6", 150 pounds, and he was a D-line coach. Wow. And he, smart guy, one of the hardest workers I've ever met. And by the way, they won the World Bowl, uh, the uh, Grey Cup championship last year, and he was the head coach for, I think, Toronto. Okay. and um, Or maybe Saskatchewan. Anyway, he was like, you know what? The best players will play. So my first game, and then the preseason, I just went crazy. I sprinted around. I was pass rushing. I was trying to do positive things. And I was standing out from my effort mm-hmm. and my hustle. And in one-on-one pass rush drills, I was doing fairly well. And in my first game against the Hamilton Tiger Cats, I was playing left defensive end on the first play of the game. I'll never forget this. The front side guard and the back side guard pulled right at me. So in front of you, you get a down-down block, right? So it's down, and then the guard comes at you. But I saw the guard, and he bubbled himself, which wasn't really good. But as soon as that guard, that tackle went down, I went through that guard pulling, like right through yeah. him. Like he didn't have a second to get, get there. When I went through his leg, the running back had to jump over him. And as he was jumping over the guard... Kevin Johnson, a linebacker who played for an NFL team previously, but also from Ohio State, jumped over the top and hit that guy in the mouth. It looked like a bomb exploded in the (laughs) backfield. And Don Matthews was like, that was one of the best plays. That's how to play, son. And it was like, from that play on, I was like, okay, I got this. And my confidence went through the roof. And I was thinking, I'm going to play here. I just know I'm going to make this team. I made the team. I ended up from snap one, first game of the year, I started. We went sixteen and two, I think. Wow. Sixteen, I think we went sixteen and two. We went to the playoffs. Uh, ended up being a CFL All Star, and we won the Grey Cup in my first year. Wow. Hadn't done it since nineteen seventy six. And it's funny because when I first got to Montreal, I'm like, this place sucks. I hate <laughs> it. I don't like it. I just want to go home. I love America. <laughs> and. Uh, after we won the Grey Cup, I think there was like 500,000 people at the parade downtown. Wow. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out if I can move here. I want to live here. Like, wow. I never want to go back. That's what my That's experience crazy. was like. It was like you go from maybe never playing football again to playing in the, 
one of the greatest cities in the world, winning the championship, and then you getting treated like you're gold. Yeah. And then I made also I made some friends that would last a lifetime. Like Max, my friend Max that you met, he was yeah. in my wedding party. Yeah. He's one of my. He was here for my birthday party. He owns a restaurant down there. That's right. right. He was at my birthday party that you weren't at, by the way. I'm very, <laughs> ups, very upset about that. That's okay. But anyway, um, yeah, he owns a restaurant, Buena Norte, the best restaurant in Canada. Nice. And then you spent three more seasons there, right? I spent 2002 there, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. 2006 was my last year. Then I came down here. I was going into 2007, by the way. Okay. And then I came down here. So, okay. So, tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I hope people actually like listening to this. This feels <laughs> like it's boring the hell out of our listeners here. So, in 2005, I tore my knee. And... um I had it, you know, we went to the Great Cup maybe three times, one at once. And in 2005, I was I, went, I was playing defense, but I was also on the punt team, and I was just covering a kick. I was running downfield. To my left was a guy uh, named Kari Samuel that was from Massachusetts. I actually played with him in a high school all-star game in Massachusetts. and But I played against him because he played at the University of Massachusetts, and he was a good friend of mine. He became a good friend of mine. He got pushed in the back. So if you're if, if the returner is running at you, he was to your left shoulder. The returner he broke outside, and the guy to your left got pushed in the back. And I saw him coming, and I jumped, but he got pushed in the back so violently that his helmet went through my left knee. Uh-huh. And I heard, I felt my knee go like an explosion, yeah. and I didn't really feel anything. I just felt like it feels like silly putty. Yeah. And I was lying on the field, and I'll never forget this because before that game, I was thinking, man, I got like, I'm living like a rock star. I got the best job in the world. I have long hair. I'm like just living like freaking <laughs> best life in the world. I'm looking up at God. I'm like, man, I need a, I need a challenge. Voila. Yeah, God's like, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> He's like, hold tight. And we had a great series, the first couple series, and then that play was like third or fourth series. And uh, my knee basically exploded, and I had ACL tear. And I was done for the year. That was only like four or five games in that 2005 season. I rehabbed my knee off season, came back. I missed the rest of that year, obviously. Came back, and we were playing Calgary, which is probably like sixth or seventh game of the year, maybe eighth game of the year. I was pass rushing on the left side. I was having probably the best game of my career. I had two sacks against Calgary, and then when I was rushing on the left side for another one, I beat the offensive lineman, but he doubled back and pushed me in the back and landed on top of me, and he probably weighed about 325 pounds, and I heard, like, a pop in my back, Oh man! and it was like someone shot my back with a flamethrower. I actually played the rest of that game, but I went home, lied down on the couch to watch the game on ESPN because they aired the games later on that day again at night and when I woke up I couldn't really move my legs so I went to the hospital spent some time in the hospital and uh, that was it I was done man so what happened to your back well my back my hips were so shifted from my back injury I tore three discs in my back and it felt like I couldn't I had no I had no stability and I had no Comfortable, not even comfortable. I had no normal sense of transverse motion at all, okay. at all. 
so like that means he couldn't rotate by I couldn't the way. do it yeah exactly <laughs> sorry yeah so I couldn't do anything Lewis and when you saw that was like the last time I took time off and I went from about 245 pounds man all the way down to 200 pounds wow. and oh, I didn't do anything all I did was rehab there's no lifting weights there was no squats there was no external force placed on my body other than my own yeah. you know and you know what I mean no body yeah. weight that's what I meant um, so were you were you actually training believing you could possibly go back at that time, I think I put it to rest because what happened with um, Montreal, when you're hurt, a team's not allowed to cut you, and they did cut me. So the, the uh, CFL Players Association had a big problem with that, and they took it up with them, and we okay. settled. Basically, they gave me a settlement. Nothing special, believe me, but uh, <laughs> just a remainder of what you're supposed to get paid, which is yeah. what you're supposed to get anyway. Sure. And uh, I just hung out in Montreal and, tra- and trained, and... Um, all I did was rehab every single day. And I was doing pool work. I was doing everything that we know to rehab a back now. Everything. That's what I was doing yeah. every day. In a pool, pool work, slow movements, trying to get range back, tons of mobility work. And that's how I got my body back because I'm telling you, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't bend over and stand up without the assistance of like a cane or a crutch or a table. Wow. That's intense, man. It was intense. It was it was not fun. It was yeah. a lot of pain. It was a lot of uncomfortable, lonely nights, buddy. Yeah. yeah. So did you stay in uh, in Canada? Or did you yeah, I stayed in Montreal, and I studied uh, acting in Montreal. So I would train all morning, and then uh, from like five o'clock to like midnight or eleven o'clock, not really midnight, not really midnight, eleven o'clock. I would uh, take these uh, acting courses. It was a Meisner training with Jacqueline McClintock, who was a famous acting instructor who became a very close friend of mine in Montreal. She was an older lady at the time, probably late 40s, and she was one of the, she passed on recently. Um, So your idea was to transition into like more like TV movies? I was going to try to do something like that because I think, you know, we think, remember we we talked about, and in part one we talked about, hey, if you're in great shape, why don't you fight in the UFC? (laughs) <laughs> or if you're a great athlete, you should probably play in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, hey, if I like to watch movies, I should I should act, right? <laughs> That's exactly what it was. That made me always think. I'm like, oh, this is easy. Well, I got to memorize like 12 pages. I can do that. I'm like Leo. How'd that work out for you? Yeah, it didn't work, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. I, I got a few. I actually did a few. Uh, I did a pilot. I was in the day after tomorrow as an extra. I didn't okay. have. A, I didn't exactly have a speaking role, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, honestly, it was a lot of fun. I the truth is, I, I I did it in Montreal, and then I moved. Dude, I wasn't playing. I went to Montreal. I studied. I didn't went. I was already in Montreal. I was uh, studying acting, and then Jack McClintock was leaving to go do a course in Toronto, and I moved to Toronto to take that course twice wow. a day. Wow! And then I won a scholarship for acting in a play I was in. And I went to Mallorca, Spain, to go to the Film Institute of Mallorca for acting. Is there footage on this play? Yeah, it's called. There, it's called. The, look it up. It's called the Wool Gatherer. Wool, the Wool Gatherer. And we can watch Mark Magnac. Yeah, you can't. You can't. If, if there's any footage on this, I'll make sure it's gone by the end of we, the night. <laughs> we gotta get that on Facebook, no. man. But, dude, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, it was it was a lot of fun. And by the way, a girl. The girl who was my opposite, it was just, we only did, you only do scenes, right? Because, yeah. like, everyone's coming to watch this thing. It was, like, a, kind of a big deal in Montreal. Yeah. Leanne Bellavan 
was my opposite. She's in movies now all the time. Okay. She's in uh, lots of Dustin Hoffman movies. I guess Dustin Hoffman actually likes this girl, meaning okay. like he likes her skills. She's yeah. a. I'm not kidding. She's an incredibly talented actress. She's in a lot of films. If you look her up, Leanne Bellavan. All right, cool. Bellavan. We'll check that out. So now, so now I think we should do this. Now that we're done with uh, the the career, right? The professional athlete career. Um, segue into now the training world but I think we should leave that for a separate podcast there's so many different things I want to ask you about your start and what influenced it and you know how the principles that you learned as a professional athlete and you know working with some of these top coaches how you kind of segue that into your business and and how you go about working with clients also man social media you know working with muscle tech um now you're a you're a business owner and you have your own facility and your own team and so i'd like to hear some of the principles and some of the leadership tactics that you use there and so i think that really has a it's a podcast of its own um especially like for guys like me who are in the personal training world and you know i know that we definitely love to hear more about those things in, in, in greater detail, kind of like how we heard your story. So I really appreciate you sharing your story, and I hope we can do that third podcast and really go into that world. Absolutely. That'd be great. Um, I, I, it sounds like a plan. I, I, I want to thank all the listeners for putting up with that <laughs> miserable story of hardship and, and rejection. But what's um, what's the main thing you would hope that your listeners would take from you sharing that story because obviously it means something to you yeah i mean it, it, listen it does it, listen a lot of people hopefully <laughs> let's say a lot of people listen to this podcast there's going to be one person that is having either a bad day bad month bad year or bad career and they're going to think you know what this is not working out for me it's probably not for me huh. okay and you have to understand I'm not suggesting to fit a round peg in a square hole, but what I am suggesting is you decide what's for you and what's best. And are there certain things that are a good fit for you that feel natural? Absolutely. But don't think just because it's extremely challenging and there's lots of hurdles and obstacles thrown in your way that it's not for you, okay? Listen. To this po- if they listen to this podcast, they know that Mark Magna worked his entire life to put on a jersey for an NFL team during the season, okay? And that was just for an opportunity. There were no guarantees. I was cut one, two, what, maybe three times? Two times before I got a shot. Some guys get cut six times before they get a shot. But they, this is a part of a, a speech that I'm going to deliver sometime soon. The three traits that athletes have, and I'm not going to get into it. I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. It's sacrifice. Uh, they, they have the ability to visualize. They use visualization. And the most important one is self-belief. Elite level athletes, top level athletes, special athletes have made up their mind of what will happen to them before they show up. Most people don't understand that. They've already made their mind up. They're not, geez, I hope I make it. They're not, I hope this works out. They're like, it's going to work out. It may not work out today, but it'll work out. You know why? Because I refuse to give up. And you have no idea what I'm, what I'm made of. 
I might bend or but I won't break. They have an unwavering belief in what they're capable of and what the possibilities are. That's what they have. It's like the intro of the podcast. You were made for extraordinary things. That's right. right. You are. And, and the people that, that's, we, we, we did talk about this before. People say, well, how come athletes always go broke? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Do you remember this? They go broke because their whole life is a long shot. Okay. Now, I know athletes certainly, some of them do stupid things with their money. I get that. But their whole life is a long shot. And everyone their whole life told them it's not possible. And they proved them wrong. So they believe if there's an investment, it's going to work out. It's all good. (laughs) And that's not the best way. So they think that they can will and make things happen. And it doesn't work that way in that sector. Right. So what your strengths can also be your weaknesses. Right. So they believe in who they are and what they're capable of right to their very core and they will not compromise they have this almost delusional belief of what they can achieve and that speaks volumes because a lot of people don't even believe in themselves and congratulations when i say you're trying you're beating everyone else because you're trying so true and the people who get what they want as we talk about all the time lewis are the ones who show up to get it and they just keep showing up yeah for sure. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate your time, and I think thank you. I know I'm I'm looking forward to the third podcast where we talk a little bit more about training and 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 that world for you. Um, and so, hopefully, the listeners will tune in then. Thank awesome. you very much for awesome. your time. Thank you so much, Lewis. I really appreciate it. You, you're uh, a gift as a friend, and I really appreciate uh, you doing this because I know it takes patience and it takes skill. But thank you very much. Thank you, brother.